Last time we spoke about the disastrous tale of Commander Tsukweka Torashige, alongside 353 SNLF Marines who got stranded on Goodenough Island for over two months. It was quite a long and terrible journey for some men who simply had one picnic on a nice looking island. Then we spoke about the incredible naval battle of Santa Cruz. The Americans lost the USS Hornet, 81 aircraft, 24 flight crew members and 240 other crew. On the other side, the Japanese lost no warships, but Zoikaku, Zoyo and Chikuma were put out of action for some weeks. They also lost 97 carrier planes and 148 pilots, many of which were irreplaceable veterans. The iGen was slowly being bled of its quality and quantity while American production was only increasing. A protracted war meant doom ultimately for the Japanese Empire. Yet today, we are traveling back to Green Hell, where the Australians were continuing their push towards Buna. This episode is the Battle of Oivi Gorari. Welcome back to the Pacific War Podcast week by week, and I'm your dutiful host, Craig Watson. But before we can begin, I just want to remind you all, this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of kings and generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about World War II? Kings and Generals has an assortment of episodes on World War II and much, much more, so go give them a look over at YouTube. So please, subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, the Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that, you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel over at YouTube where I'm currently releasing a series on many of the Medals of Honor earned on Guadalcanal. And I did this in collaboration with Dave Holland of the channel Guadalcanal Walking a Battlefield. So he provided me with photos and videos of all the locations on Guadalcanal that he walked where these Medals of Honors were earned. It was a really fun series to make and I uh, hope some of you check it out. Mean a lot to me. The losses during the Battle of Santa Cruz brought a ton of tension to Washington. At the same time the battles of Stalingrad and Al Alamein were raging, it seemed the situation in the South Pacific was critical. Operation Torch, the movement of massive amounts of convoys bearing thousands of British and American troops from North Africa, was the current focus. President Roosevelt had to grapple with a growing crisis in the Pacific, however, and on October the 24th he sent a memorandum to the joining chiefs of staff, and here is part of that. My anxiety about the Southwest Pacific is to make sure that every possible weapon gets into that area to hold Guadalcanal, and that having held it in this crisis, that munitions and planes and crews are on their way to take advantage of our success. We will soon find ourselves engaged on two active fronts, and we must have adequate air support in both places even though it means delay in our other commitments, particularly to England. I wish, therefore, you would canvass over the week end every possible temporary diversion of munitions which you will require for active fronts. General Marshall and Admiral King both diagnosed the situation in the South Pacific as one lacking strong air or ground forces but also in dire need of shipping. 
FDR ordered 20 more ships to be released to the Southwest Pacific on October the 26th, but this of course meant tonnage earmarked for the USSR or Operation Torch were diverted. On the other side, the Imperial headquarters in Tokyo reached a true strategic consensus on Guadalcanal by the end of October. Only now did the army fully accept the view, held for a long time by the navy, that the fighting in the Solomons was developing into a decisive battle between them and America. Despite the many failures on the ground of Guadalcanal, Imperial headquarters prepared confidently for another offensive, based on two major reasons. Number one, they thought the Battle of Santa Cruz had resulted in the destruction of four American carriers, a battleship, and had tilted the balance of naval power decisively back to the IGN. Number two, they thought the last ground offensive had teetered on the edge of success. They assumed the American forces on Guadalcanal were fatigued, especially their pilots. Why did they assume this, you might be asking? They were reading American news accounts, saying that penetrations of the American defensive lines had only been restored during the offensive because of massive counterattacks. The news sources had also indicated exaggerated numbers of Japanese troops on Guadalcanal, and was literally saying that their men were fatigued, specifically their pilots. The news was an obvious ploy to goad the Japanese into more ground offensives on Guadalcanal, as you could imagine. Not sure if I've said it yet in this series, but it's a bit misleading the territory of Guadalcanal when you're looking at it from a map. Of course you're led to believe that the Japanese have kind of a advantage because it's quote in their home backyard, but it's really not. It's at the very, very fringe of their logistical capability. Whereas for the Americans, they have Australia as this firm base from which to move troops and even train troops. Thus, it's very well within their logistical capability. So Guadalcanal is arguably closer to America when you think about it. Thus, from the American point of view, as soon as they had tipped the scale in a few of those battles for Henderson, forcing the Japanese to continuously throw troops at Guadalcanal, it was a no-brainer. It risked Japanese destroyers, transports, and submarines to just move any equipment and troops over to the island while the Americans could pretty much do it for free. For the Japanese, if they ever wanted to deal with the American shipping, they'd have to uh, send a naval fleet to go attack them, because the Japanese were certainly not using their submarines effectively to hit Allied shipping. I mean, it was, uh, <laughs> quite frankly, it was a joke. Anyways, we'll get back to the story now. I'm done with that rant. The 17th Army HQ on October the 26th was preparing a new offensive after just getting smashed. It was decided the 51st Infantry Division would go to Guadalcanal to join the 2nd Division as a Western Prong attack in late December. The Eastern Prong would be the 38th Division at Coley Point, where Shoji's right wing was already en route to. The proposal to deploy the 38th Division to Coley Point was met with a lot of pushback. But the military planners argued that they had to neutralize Henderson Field with proper employment of firepower from some high ground. This high ground was, of course, just due east of the Luga River, the key terrain to all the previous offensives. The 38th Division was a necessity to grab this terrain. To sweeten the dissenters up a bit, the 21st Independent Mixed Brigade was promised to be made readily available alongside the 51st Division. During the planning for this new offensive, the 2nd Division was retreating bitterly. Shoji's right wing was trekking it to Koli Point, while Tamioka, the former chief of staff of the Sendai Division, assumed command of the left wing, bringing them up to the upper Lunga Valley. 
The 17th Army directed a shift of its concentration to the upper Matanikau Valley. At this point, far too many wounded existed for the regular medical units to tend to, so every unit became responsible for the care of its injured and sick. The exertion placed upon each soldier to propel himself, his heavy equipment, and now a wounded soldier, over the muddy jungle trails under heavy rain and with no provisions, tested the limits of human endurance. One Lieutenant, Kijiro Minagishi, had this to write in his diary during the late October period. October the 27th. I never dreamed of retreating over the same mountainous trail. Through the jungle we crossed with such enthusiasm, we haven't eaten for three days, and even walking is difficult. On the uphill, my body swayed around, unable to walk. I can't imagine how the soldiers carrying the artillery are doing. I must take a rest every two meters. It is quite disheartening to have only tiny teaspoons of salt per day and a palmful of rice porridge. October the 28th, we had to search again for the regimental colors. The taste of even temporary defeat is bitter. Perhaps it is well for a soldier to sample such a thing once in a lifetime, but it's still very, very distasteful. We must win at any cost in this fight. October the 29th, the sky cleared up this morning and we saw the sun. I have begun to see what seems to be malnutrition. I don't know how many men must be left behind today. October the 30th. I am surprised by how food captures the mind, to the degree that one is always thinking of it. I try to think of other things, but I can't. November the 1st. The company reached the regimental headquarters at noon and we are told we will get provisions tomorrow evening. I can hardly wait. On the night of October the 29th, the destroyers Shigure and Ariaki dropped supplies in two special passengers, Commander Omai and General Miyazuki. These two men would join the 17th Army HQ for some conferences. Miyazuki was one of the men who pushed back on the Coley Point plan and he made the decision to abort the Coley operation that day after he landed on Guadalcanal. He then faced the daunting figures of the 17th Army's logistical needs. The 17th Army HQ estimated they needed about 200 tons of provisions per day to supply 30,000 men, and this equaled roughly 5 destroyer loads per night. The 8th Fleet estimated the movement of the rest of the 38th Division the 41st Division, and the 21st Independent Mixed Brigade, roughly 30,000 men, 300 guns, and 3,000 tons of supplies would require 50 transports and over 800 destroyers and possibly 20 seaplane carrier runs. The IGA and IGN also butt heads over how to transport. The IGA wanted small convoys, while the IGN wanted large ones that could also bombard Henderson Field. After looking at some of the 17th Army's plans, Admiral Yamamoto commented that they were so unrealistic that the Guadalcanal operation probably could never succeed with such, quote, morons running the army. There is no romance like the IJIGN romance. Yamamoto and his staff instead aimed to neutralize Henderson Field with some shore-based artillery, and they began planning to move long-range naval guns to Guadalcanal. 
A plan was formed on November the 7th for a large convoy to move major reinforcements to Guadalcanal on Z-Day, escorted by the 8th Fleet, while the 11th Air Fleet would wrestle for air superiority with the Cactus Air Force. The advance force would take position north of Guadalcanal and the battleships Hayway and Kiroshima would bombard Henderson Field the day before Z-Day. And on Z-Day, cruisers would bombard Henderson Field. They figured this would mean the Cactus Air Force would have no ability to fight off the large convoy, thus safely bringing everything to the island. Z-Day was planned for November the 13th. On the American side, the aftermath of the October battles for Henderson Field led Admiral Halsey to be asked to reinforce Guadalcanal. On October the 26th, however, a large transport named the President Coolidge sailed into a minefield at Espiritu Santo, screwing up the reinforcement plans. While only five people died, the 172 infantry regiment lost all of their equipment to the sinking of the ship. On October the 29th, Halsey pledged to Vandegrift and Nimitz he would seize an additional beachhead at Oela and would land the 8th Marines with army regiments following it up. The Cactus Air Force got revitalized in early November by additional pilots and aircraft. There was now 60 operational aircraft on Guadalcanal and 35 B-17s that could contribute to its defenses from rear bases. The newcomers found a complex of three fields now on Guadalcanal, Henderson Field, Fighter 1, and the brand new Fighter 2 airfield. Many pilots and flight crews were cycled to give some much needed rest to the men. The cycling did not stop with the pilots and flight crew. A very exhausted General Geiger was cycled out for Brigadier General Lewis Woods. Meanwhile, the Japanese R Area Air Force was trying to rebuild itself, leading to a bit of a lull in early November. With a lull going on in the skies, Vandegrift was eager to take advantage of the great October victories and commence a new offensive. Yet again, the Americans would strike to the west of Guadalcanal, but this time it held twofold purposes. Number one, to drive the Japanese back beyond artillery range of Henderson Field. And number two, to cut off the retreat of the enemy forces along the upper Lunga River. Vandegrift held a survey of the forces, and he found out that Edson's 5th Marines were well-rested, albeit reduced in number. So Vandegrift tossed the 2nd Battalion of the 2nd Marines from Tulagi to add to their strength, and on October the 30th ordered the 5th Marines to lead an attack and seize the village of Kokumbona, thus driving the enemy past the Boha River. The 5th Marines would lead the attack, supported further inland by the Whaling Group, which now consisted of scout snipers. There would also be some battalions of the 7th and 2nd Marines, and firepower support from the 11th Marine Artillery, and naval gun fire, and of course, the Cactus Air Force. Simiyoshi had two threadbare regiments. Nakaguma's 4th Infantry covered the sector on the western bank of the Matanikau, from the shore to the One Log Bridge. Beyond him was Oka's mixed detachment, extending its line to Mount Austin. By October the 28th, Oka reported his command was around half-strength, so Nakaguma had to lend him the 3rd Battalion, leaving him with just two. Thus, Nakaguma chose to cover the entire regimental frontage with Major Tamura's 2nd Battalion. On October the 29th, some American steerings began around the One Log Bridge, prompting Semiyoshi to reinforce that point. Elements of the 3rd Battalion 1st Marines patrolling west of Matanikau then sent the 1st Engineer Battalion over a trio of foot bridges across the river on November the 1st. By 6.30 a.m., 9 artillery batteries provided cover as the 2nd Battalion 5th Marines, led by Major Lewis Walt, crossed the Matanikau, 
alongside the 1st Battalion, 5th Marines, led by Major William Enright. The Cactus Air Force, plus 19 B-17s, rained hell upon the Japanese territory as the 1st Battalion marched along the coast, and the 2nd Battalion marched further inland. They were joined by the 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines, led by Major Robert Bowen, by 8 a.m. Walt's group encountered little resistance and reached a ridge south of Point Cruz by 10 a.m. The whaling group managed to cross the one log bridge and marched deeper inland. Enright's group, however, had a much different time of it. After crossing a footbridge, the battalion was met with machine gun fire and light artillery at 8.30 a.m. In close and confused fighting, Company C ran straight into the 7th Company and they suffered terrible casualties, including the loss of three officers. Colonels Edson, Thomas, and Lieutenant Colonel Twinning reviewed the situation and decided it was best to bypass and encircle the Japanese position at Point Cruz. To do this, the 1st and 3rd Battalions of the 5th Marines would continue to push in the sector of the 1st Battalion 5th Marines, while the 2nd Battalion 5th Marines would head further north to the coast to envelop the enemy. Meanwhile, the 7th Company facing the 1st Battalion was having a very hard time of things, as Major Tamura's diary indicated on the night of November the 1st, the 7th Company has vanished. After vigorous fighting, including three counterattacks, the 7th Company was down to just 10 men, and the 5th Company nearby was around 15. The regimental gun company was practically wiped out, and its one artillery piece was all but destroyed. The 17th Army now understood the situation was critical. The Americans looked like they were going to break through to Kokombona. Colonel Sagita was sent to the front with orders to halt the American advance at any cost. However, Sagita's mission appeared hopeless given the resources on hand. To restore the shattered front, Sagita deployed the 2nd Anti-Tank Gun Battalion with a dozen guns near Point Cruz and drafted the 2nd Line 39th Field Road Construction Unit as a substitute for riflemen that he needed. Desperate times called for desperate measures, as they say. On November the 2nd, the Wayland Group went due north to take the zone the 2nd Battalion was holding, permitting them to go further north towards the west of Point Cruz completing the encirclement of the Japanese facing the other battalions of the 5th Marines. The Japanese were now stuck along the coastal roads and the beach west of Point Cruz, resulting in some vicious cave fighting, very reminiscent of what occurred on Gavitu and Tanambogo. During the afternoon, Captain Erskine Wells of Company I led the only authenticated American bayonet charge of the entire campaign, slicing through an enemy position. The Marines gradually battered the Japanese pocket while the 2nd Battalion continued to advance west of Point Cruz. Over in the seas, the Tokyo Express was transporting 300 soldiers of the Otsu unit, two mountain guns, ammo, and provisions to Koli Point, alongside 240 soldiers of the Ko unit with their supplies to Tassafaronga. American radio intelligence figured out that there was two convoys going about and sent word to the men on Guadalcanal. But by November the 1st, there was no easy way to exploit the knowledge. With all the rested units engaged in the Western Offensive, the task of facing the new enemy threat in the East fell onto Lieutenant Colonel Hannikin's 2nd Battalion, 7th Marines. At 6.50 a.m. on November the 2nd, Hannikin's men began a march towards the Metapona River, and after dark traversed its river mouth. When they got near Coley Point, the Marines detected faint dark patches drifting across the bay. Soon. They heard voices, and noises just a thousand yards further east. It was the Japanese landing. Small boats were moving provisions for over 2,000 men, 
for 10 days alongside a two-gun battery of the mountain artillery. It was hard to tell in the dark, but the Marines thought that they could see a light cruiser and a small transport alongside some other ships, indicating that it was a major landing. By dawn, an eight-man enemy patrol had gone up the beach and discovered the Marines, losing four men in the process. Hanneken's men began to fire their 88mm motors, targeting the beaches where the Japanese were landing, but the enemy offered no response. The lack of any reaction led Hanneken to plan for an attack on the beach. But then a skirmish began as several hundred Japanese advanced up the beach towards her position. Hanneken's machine gun crews and motormen met the enemy, who numbered around 300 men. One of the mountain guns was assembled on the beach and began firing on Hanneken's nearest unit, F Company. Hanneken's situation was quite dire. He had no air or naval support and casualties were mounting high for F Company. F Company's commander was killed. Their ammunition supply was burnt by motor fire, and they were very isolated. Anakin pulled his men out, trying to prevent an encirclement. He pulled the battalion back to the western bank of the Nalimbu, and he sent word to Divisional HQ at 2.45. All morning, the Marine Command waited eagerly for reports. By noon that day, HQ learned that the Japanese pocket was pushed into some caves near Point Cruz. The Marines had captured a dozen 37mm guns. Most of the equipment of the 2nd Anti-Tank Gun Battalion, whom were all dead, one field artillery piece, and over 34 machine guns. The 2nd Battalion 5th Marines counted around 239 dead Japanese. To try and counter the American penetration, Nakagumas 4th Infantry Regiment of around 500 men on November the 3rd received some lackluster reinforcements. 70 frail survivors of the Ichiki Detachment. Yes, they still exist. And on top of that, a hundred frail members of the original Navy garrison. The 2nd and 1st Marines alongside the whaling group were now moving further inland to flank and drive the Japanese further back. During the evening, Sugita conferred with Miyazuki and Suiji. Sugita had a bad case of malaria, and he overlooked the dire situation. While things were certainly very bad, if the 2nd Division were to be cut off from their retreat, things were going to go from very bad to absolutely catastrophic. But something managed to buy a bit more time for the 17th Army. Rather ironically, the ill-conceived attempt to make Holy Point a base of operations forced the Marines' High Command to act. Marine High Command did not know the forces sent to Koli had to abandon the plan. And they planned to wipe them out because they thought they were too large in number. Vandegrift did not have enough troops to simultaneously push the attack west and defend the main perimeter and launch an attack east. There was a scheduled arrival of the 8th Marines set for November the 4th, but he could not be certain they would not be delayed. Vandegrift knew Hanneken's men got a bit battered and were pulling back, and that the airfield needed to be guarded at all times no matter what. Thus, reshuffling was in order. When Hanneken's report came, Lieutenant Colonel Poehler mustered his battalion of the 7th Marines for a boat movement to reinforce them. Alongside this, two tank companies were sent east to join Hanneken, the 164th Infantry marched inland towards Nalimbu, and Brigadier General Rupertus made ready to take control of the Joint Service Expedition. To give the Marine and Army forces a longer reach, Lieutenant Colonel Manley Curry's 3rd Battalion of the 10th Marines manhandled its 75mm pack howitzers across the swollen Illu. 31 aircraft were also designated to help support Hanneken's position. 
The aircraft caught Shoji's detachment on their last legs marching to Coley Point, causing an estimated 100 casualties upon them. Not as helpful, the aircraft also hit Hanakin's men, adding to their casualties. When Shoji's men made it to Coley Point, they found fever-riddled survivors of Ichiki's and Kawaguchi's men. They quickly occupied a large grass field which was suitable for an airstrip, as they could see crash-landed aircraft all about. By November the 4th, the action was dwindling down towards Kokumbona and Nilimbu. Leading elements of the Sendai Division had reached the 17th Army HQ, but they were far too distant to aid the action over at Kokobona. Lieutenant Colonel Twinning was urging they push to the Poa River, arguing that the Japanese strongpoint was most likely at Point Cruz. Yet the normally aggressive Merritt Edson opposed the deeper advance, and Vandegrift and Thomas agreed with him. The 5th Marines and Whaling Group were recalled to go help the crisis in the east, while the 1st and 2nd, 2nd Marines and the 1st Battalion of the 164th Regiment kept their westward advance, halting just 4,000 yards shy of Kokumbona. Even if the American offensive west failed to reach its objective, they had still diverted a lot of Japanese artillery munition from ever being used on Henderson Field. While relative tranquility would occur for a few days, on November the 7th, Colonel Nakaguma was hit and killed by an artillery shell. Over in the east, Polar's men, Colonel Arthur Sims and Rupertus reached Nalimbu. There, Rupertus reorganized and took full command of the forces east of the Lunga and decided to wait for the 164th men to get there. While he waited, the Helena, San Francisco, and Starrett bombarded the Japanese at Coldy Point. The 164th and 8th Marines got to Nalimbu, while orders were given for the 2nd Raider Battalion to join Rupertus's command but this unit was further away in the opposite direction. The Raiders had just reached Guadalcanal with the original mission of spearheading the Aloha Intent to construct an airfield there. The Raiders landed unopposed at Aloha, and 500 naval construction men of the 147th Infantry Regiment went to work. Aloha would prove to be a swamp, however, and it was completely unsuitable for an airfield, and thus the operation became a failure by November the 22nd. And one week later, the men would all move to Coley Point to build yet again another airfield. On November the 5th, Rupertus ordered the 164th Infantry to cross the east bank of the Nalambu to hit the Japanese flank. Also on November the 5th, the Tokyo Express made an emergency run because of the Kokubona Offensive. The 17th Army sent word that they urgently required reinforcements while the 11th Air Fleet tossed 27 Bettys and 24 Zeros to help out. The Tenru and five destroyers brought part of the 228th Infantry Regiment to Cape Esperance, while ten other destroyers brought Major General Ito and the rest of the 228th to Tassafaranga. On November the 6th, the 7th Marines crossed the Nilimbu, joining the 164th, and the next day they marched towards the mouth of the Metapona. There they dug in to defend the beach against possible landings. To try and put the hurt on the Tokyo Express, the Cactus Air Force tossed seven Dauntless, three Avengers, 21 Wildcats, and nine P-39s. The Tokyo Express had the R-Area Air Force to protect it, around six Rufis and four Peets, who put up a spirited defense, but six Rufis and one Peet would be shot down. The Naganami and Takanami ended up getting strafed, adding 17 casualties. On November the 8th, Shoji's regiment and the new reinforcements dug in along the Gavaga Creek at Tetteri, a mile east of the Metapona. The 7th Marines began to net around the Shoji detachment as Rupertus was forced to relinquish command to General Sibri 
because he was suffering from dengue fever. Polar likewise was wounded and had to relinquish command as well. The same day, Halsey stepped foot on Guadalcanal, and he said to Vandegrift, It was like a wonderful breath of fresh air, full of interest and enthusiasm. Halsey talked to a great many Marines of all ranks, but more importantly, he saw, quote, Their gaunt, malaria-ridden bodies and their faces lined from what seemed like a nightmare of years. On November the 9th, Vandegrift ordered most of the 164th Infantry to redeploy for a renewed Western offensive, while trucks and boats shuffled the rest of the regiment and Company B of the 8th Marines back to the Lunga perimeter. The 2nd Battalion of the 164th extended the lines of the 1st Battalion 7th Marines west of the creek. By the night of November the 9th, the 164th and the 7th Marines had almost encircled the Japanese on the other side of the creek, but most of them managed to escape at the last minute. Although the Shoji Regiment managed to pull out, they did so with a massive amount of casualties. The systematic extermination of the remnants of them and Kawaguchis resulted in 450 dead Japanese, all at the cost of 40 dead and 120 wounded Americans. Shoji slipped away with 3,000 starving men to trek it all the way back to the 17th Army HQ. They would make a terrifying march through the Matanikau, and they would not be alone. The 2nd Raider Battalion, Carlson's Raiders, would be pursuing them. And the story of that pursuit is quite a bloody one. But you're going to have to wait until next week, as we now have to turn over to Green Hell. Back in late October, the Allied victory at Yora Creek opened up the road to Kokoda, and General Hori decided to pull back all the way to Oivi Gorari. He simply gave up Kokoda, deeming it too difficult a position to defend. Thus, by November the 2nd, the Australians entered a abandoned village of Kokoda. The Japanese were miserable. Their trek backwards saw their hair and beards growing shaggy, their uniforms in tatters, soiled in mud and blood, and some men did not even have uniforms anymore. They were using blankets and straw rice bags as clothing. They carried the little rice and caro they had left in dirty kits. Men were starving, exhausted and sick. Many described them as, quote, skin and bone, plodding along with the help of a stick. The men fit enough to support stretchers staggered around in groups of four with a stick and the wounded on their shoulders. Many men fell down, and they simply never got back up. One sergeant, Imanishi, was amongst the withdrawing forces, and when he got to Deniki, he saw a group of planes flying over Kikoda just ahead of him. The planes dropped parachute parcels, and to his glee, the rising flag could be seen. When he got to Kokoda, he was told the Navy bombers had dropped some food there and that he could grab some. Turns out the Navy pilots were trying to make some drops to help the starving South Seas force, because the Korean carriers simply ate most of the food they were bringing up the Kokoda track. The lucky men near the drop zone grabbed rice and began to cook it, feeling for the first time in weeks full. They could not linger long, however, as Hori, like I said, decided to bypass Kokoda. Over at the village of Oivi, Japanese engineers were constructing defensive bunkers on some high ground, just up the main track a few kilometers. The 41st Regiment was the primary unit to hold Oivi. The 144th were kept in reserve occupying Gorari, five kilometers further back. 
The Stanley Detachment, having taken the brunt of the Aura Creek battle, earned themselves a position out of the immediate line of Allied fire. The South Seas HQ was erected just south of Garari, near a place called Waju. The Kawada Battalion of the 144th also provided support for the defensive perimeter. Overall morale was low. The airdrops near Kokoda had helped, but it was not nearly enough supplies that they desperately needed. Two transport ships, the Choru Maru and Kiyokawa Maru, landed supplies at Buna on November the 2nd. Bags of rice, wheat, and barrels of pickled plums were brought to Waju, raising morale considerably. On the other side of the coin, an incident occurred showcasing the discontent amongst the troops with their leadership. One Lieutenant Kanamoto, who was in charge of trucks carrying the wounded to the hospital at Giruwa, was accosted by a major he did not recognize. Kanamoto wrote of the incident in his diary. The man said, Hey, transportation unit, I'm Major Hori, going back to Japan by order of Imperial HQ. Let me on your truck. The transportation officer sitting next to the man thought to himself, He's supposed to be commanding the Stanley Detachment in a bitter fight to hold off the enemy. Why is he going back to Japan? During the drive, Allied fighters flew overhead causing Kanemoto to jump out of the truck and sprawl onto the ground for cover, right beside Hori's Batman. Kanemoto asked the Batman why Hori was going back to Japan, which the man replied, I heard the Major will have to take an exam at Army College, sir. Upon hearing this, Kanemoto was livid. He couldn't understand how an exam could be more important than an officer staying with his men who struggled still along the Owen Stanley range. Kanemoto suspected the Major told his men it was very hard to leave them all while he was giving them up to advance his own career. Apparently Kanemoto reported the incident, and Colonel Tsukamoto was angry as hell when he found out. Tsukamoto said to his men, What the hell? So the guy wants to enter the army college that much and wouldn't hesitate to leave his men behind? Very well. Let him go home and disappear from here. I don't want to see his face again. Thus, in the end, Hori was replaced in the field by Major Koikichi Kato as commander of the 2nd Battalion. When the Australians reached the vicinity of Oivi and Gorari, the Japanese were waiting in their foxholes, reinforced with palm logs and well camouflaged. The 41st Regiment occupied two areas of high ground, straddling Oivi, the Kawai Battalion were north of the track, while the Miyamoto Battalion were to the south. The 144th were a more mobile defensive line, with the Tsukamoto Battalion taking the most forward position. The Australians first appeared on November the 3rd, and they were immediately pinned down with machine gun fire and rifle fire from the most forward positions. An Australian patrol crossed a small creek to be met with a volley of gunfire. Thus, by dusk, the Allies made no further progress. During the night, the 144th frontal lines disengaged and moved back towards sturdier defensive lines amongst the rest of the 144th. On November the 4th, the Australians crossed the creek again to attack the two flanks of the Japanese, only to find the frontal positions abandoned. They moved down the track some more, and they were ambushed by a Japanese patrol. Behind that patrol was the 3rd Company of the 55th Mountain Artillery Regiment, led by Lieutenant Yoshifumi Takagi 
who began to bombard them with a mountain gun. By the early afternoon, the Australians were being attacked from a number of Juki emplacements. The Australians under heavy artillery fire tried to push forward, but it was to no avail. Later that afternoon, the Tsukamoto Battalion moved behind some entrenched positions of the 41st on the Oivi High Grounds as the 55th pulled its mountain gun back 4 kilometers to the western side of Karori Village. All of this action amounted to mere skirmishes. On November the 5th, the Australians approached the 41st positions as the first patrol was hit by heavy motor fire from Major Miyamoto's men on the southern position. An Australian battalion was brought in to try and break through, but it could not penetrate the Japanese defenses. By the end of the day, the Australians had considerable casualties. They began to dig in 50 meters away from the 41st position. The next day, the Australians tried flanking maneuvers with a direct attack, but it made little headway. It was met with even more casualties. In the later afternoon, the Japanese made a counterattack with machine guns, but were pushed back leading to a stalemate. General Allen had been sacked back at Eora Creek and replaced by General Vesey, who was being put under pressure by Blamey. Unable to provide any progress on the western flank of Oivi, Vesey ordered a second line of attack. He ordered two battalions to move along an area below Garari where air reconnaissance indicated some troops were dug in. A third battalion was sent to cut off the Japanese retreat, but it ran out of rations and was forced to join the other two eventually. Hori did not place guards on the southern tracks, leaving his flank exposed. The Australians came across some cooking fire remains and Japanese cigarettes as they closed in on the front line defense. Lewuni Creek, to the east of Gorari, began to fast flow, making it difficult to cross without a suspension bridge. The 1st Battalion of the 144th Regiment were dug in on both sides of the creek, with the HQ on the western side. On the afternoon of the 8th, the Australian troops pushed into the southern rim of the South Seas Force HQ. A 2nd Battalion of the 25th swung widely to the right and came behind the Japanese troops trying to deal with the opening thrust. The Japanese realized that they were in trouble. The Australians had snuck up on an exposed southern part of their defensive lines, and this prompted Hori to evacuate his HQ as it was rapidly becoming the front lines. A significant number of forces at Garari evacuated too quickly, leaving few defenders to hold off the Australian pursuit. To make matters worse, torrential rain was flooding the Japanese foxholes. The Australian battalions converged around Garari quickly surrounding it. They pushed all the way up to the main Buna track, where the 2nd Battalions of the 33rd veered left to hit Gorari Village, and the 2nd Battalion moved to the right to hit the 144th Supply Depot. The Japanese were now simultaneously fending off attacks in three separate battle areas, around Gorori Village, to the north of Waju, and on the high grounds of Oivi. Colonel Yawazawa's men of the 41st continued to hold off the enemy at the front lines of Oivi, and was submitted to two days of aerial bombing and strafing. The Australians used motors to try and dislodge the Japanese from the high ground positions as they returned fire with their motors and mountain guns. Five kilometers away, the 144th were desperately trying to choke off enemy attacks on two fronts, and in their desperation, they mounted a charge upon the Australians met by their Tommy guns. Now the Australians held the initiative, and they advanced on the Japanese positions, pushing them back from their forward arc of bunkers. Hori's HQ personnel who had not yet managed to evacuate were caught up in close quarter exchanges of bayonet charges and machine gun fire as the Australians pressed home their attack. Kawada's guard and the remaining HQ personnel no longer had a path of retreat 
their line towards Gorari was severed off. An afternoon attack penetrated some of the defensive line, but the Australians could not hold onto any ground that they gained. Under constant machine gun fire, the Australians withdrew sustaining heavy losses, but they still held the tactical advantage. The Japanese were trapped. Meanwhile at Waju and Oivi, these positions were being hit very heavily. The 144th Regiment's medical post and supply stores were overrun in the late afternoon, scattering defenders in all directions. This led to a decisive Australian attack, which saw them seize the Luana Creek's bridge. Ori's defensive strategy was unraveling horribly. He was no longer able to be in a position to perform offensive actions. The 41st were withdrawing from Oifi only to run into the enemy as they passed over to the 144th rear guard positions. Finally, the decision was made for a general withdrawal of the South Seas Force from the Gurari area, but the Australians had infiltrated so deeply the withdrawal could only be done in piecemeal. Hori regarded a withdrawal to the Kamusi as a last resort, and it seemed that that time had come. The HQ force, including Hori himself, got over to the Oivi Creek before Australians got around their rear, and from there they marched north towards the Kamusi River. The 144th got caught up in a battle, but the 41st got along the track to help them out as the men withdrew in piecemeal. A major issue now was, for the retreating men, they had to get past a suspension bridge at the Luwini Creek. But this was no man's land now. The Australians had heavily booby-trapped the area, and they were looking over it, so the Japanese would not be able to cross it easily. The Japanese numbers at Gorari had expanded somewhat by the 41st withdrawal of Oivi to aid them. By November the 10th, the 144th had been pushed backwards out of the Gorori village in the reverse direction of their intended retreat. They desperately needed to make space for themselves and now the 41st to retreat. The Japanese rushed enemy positions with rifle and machine gun fire, trying to cause a breakthrough. Lieutenant Takagi's artillery company dragged its mountain gun just west of Gorari and began to fire high explosive shells at point-blank range. The air over Gorari became a rain of shrapnel for over two hours, yet it was still not enough to give the Japanese units a way back into the village. By noon of the 11th, shells ran out, and groups of the 144th began trying to make breakthroughs in multiple directions like pinballs in a machine. In the southern portion, Kawada's men were butchered, and during the night, many slipped away trying to get to the Kamusi River. They abandoned most of their heavy equipment and lost countless men. Those defenders closer to the Oifi Creek tried to cross it. Those closer to the Luwuni attempted to fight through the Australian positions. Heavy equipment like the mountain gun were abandoned so the wounded could be carried. Lieutenant Takagi begged his commander, If we can carry out all the wounded, then please let us carry the mountain gun as well. His request was refused, and Takagi helped bury the artillery piece so it might evade Australian hands. As the last bit of dirt was poured over it, the men saluted the mound, and Lieutenant Takagi raised his pistol, and he shot himself in the head. Sergeant Imanashi, who was nearby, said, I can never forget the sound. Only one shot, like, pump. The battlefield was so quiet, and many of us could hear the sound. Takagi's men screamed at their commander had shot himself. Major Kowai wrote in his memoirs referencing the very incident. 
Artillery officers fresh from officers' college hold equal sentiment for their guns and military orders. Older army commanders hold human life as the fundamental principle. The military spirit which compelled the lieutenant to act will live forever. At the same time, even the decision of the commander to bury the gun was principled, when seen from a wider perspective, owing to his desire to save the young troops in his charge. In the meantime, the Luwini Bridge still remained a no-man's land. Though the Australian defensive positions were dislodged, the Australians had made another bridge using logs upstream to continue to harass the Japanese trying to cross at Luwini. A 200-man-strong rearguard of Japanese had dug in on a track towards the Kamusi River, and they were quickly surrounded and many of them were killed. Many of the survivors of the 144th slipped through some gaps of the encirclement at night, and were following the Luwuni Creek upstream to cross it. Closer to Oivi, Major Kowai screamed at his men to toss their weapons to quicken their retreat. Many of the soldiers were bewildered by this, they didn't want to give up their rifles, until Kowai said, I am Major Kowai of the 41st. I'll look after your rifles for you. If the company commander asks you where they are, tell them Major Kowai has taken charge of them. Once the men moved on, Kowai discharged the rifles and he moved on. Overall, the Japanese received 430 killed and 400 wounded. The Australians suffered 121 killed and 225 wounded. Many of the 144th retreated along the main track from Kokoda, crossing the Kamusi River near Papaki on November the 14th. Some of the Kauai Battalion there, with the 144th, drowned in the Kamusi River, where they hastily tried to build rafts that sank. Over at Pinga, General Hori could hear artillery fire from the direction of Girua, along the coast, and he guessed that the base there was already under attack. Hori was extremely anxious to get to Girawa quickly, to see the situation, so he decided to take a raft over the Kamusi River with some of his officers. He left the South Seas force in the charge of Colonel Yazawa, and he ordered him to take the forces towards Gona. As Hori boarded the large palm log raft, he said, I'll go on ahead. As Hori's raft went down the Kamusi River, it became stuck on a submerged tree two kilometers downstream. Despite frantic efforts to release it, it remained stuck. Hori and the officers abandoned it as they clambered to shore. Hori then managed to commandeer a canoe that they had found. He and his chief of staff, Colonel Tanaka, and one private, Shijiki Fukuoka, who in civilian life was a fisherman who could paddle very well, took the canoe. Hori was very anxious to get to Gurua to lead the men there. Thus, when their canoe reached the mouth of the river, he made a very fateful decision to reach Gorora by sea. For those of you who might not be too familiar with canoes, they do not perform very well at sea. It's quite dangerous. To stay out of the range of enemy artillery, they took a course quite a distance from the shore. Despite Fukuoka's strong paddling, the trio ran into a tropical thunderstorm, and the canoe capsized and sank. It turned out Tanaka could not swim, and he chose not to say anything because he wanted to be alongside his commander. Tanaka drowned first, as Hori and Fukuoka struggled to swim towards the shore. Hori, in his 50s, debilitated by prolonged hunger, he knew he would not make it. 
He told Fukuoka before drowning. I haven't the strength to swim any further. Tell the troops that Hori died here. Hori then lifted both arms above the water and cried, Tenoheka Banzai. Fukuoka, a young fisherman by trade, swam to the shore and he lived on to tell the story of how General Tomitaro Hori drowned. One of the legendary generals of the IGA had met his doom to green hell. I would like to take this time to remind all of you that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Please go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest the Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel over at YouTube. Just released a series on many of the Medals of Honor earned on Guadalcanal. Please check it out, it means a lot to me. The Japanese received horrible losses to another American offensive on Guadalcanal. The Battle of Ovigorari was a disaster for the Japanese, who kept up their retreat. General Tomitaro Hori, who had won countless victories and many campaigns, tried his best to get to the front lines to help his men, and in doing so, drowned.